I don't know if others can hear me. It looks like I'm coming through. Um, <clears throat> so thank you everyone for joining us. Um, this is CASA's inaugural Twitter space. Um, we have with us tonight from CASA, uh, Matt Cully, one of our board members, also um, a, a, a well-known vaping reviewer, um, Jim McDonald, uh, another board member, uh, also a writer at Vaping 360. Logan Evans, another board member um, and uh, outspoken harm reduction advocate in his spare time that he does not have a whole lot of. Uh, Danielle Jones, our president of our board, is uh, in the background making sure that this thing goes off with relatively out a hitch. Uh, and <clears throat> we are, um, I am, am privileged and honored to be able to introduce our very special guest for this first time Twitter Spaces for CASA, um, Ethan Nadelman. Um, for those who may not know Ethan, uh, he is the founder and former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, I believe in some form or another, Ethan, you have been involved in drug policy reform for more than 30 years. Um, and so uh, if anybody is interested in some of uh, the stuff that, that Ethan has been working on over the years, I highly recommend checking out his TED Talk. Uh, which has been uh, translated into 28 different languages and viewed over 2 million times. Uh, and recently, within the past, I think, three years, uh, Ethan, uh, you have uh, participated in, in some of the vaping-oriented, tobacco harm reduction-oriented um, uh, conferences, uh, the Global Forum on Nicotine, um, the E-Cigarette Summit, and, of course, in the theme of what we are talking about here tonight, uh, is uh, the overall, the, this large umbrella of harm reduction, which we've talked about quite a bit on our own podcast, but this is a little bit different, a little bit more casual, um, and, and how, we can, how we can bridge the gap between drug policy reform and drug harm reduction and bring tobacco harm reduction into the fold uh, and, and hopefully uh, gain some perspective on, on where we are in uh, all of this, all, all drugs being treated uh, or, or being considered under this harm reduction uh, movement. So uh, without further ado, um, Ethan, welcome to our inaugural Twitter space. So I think oh, all Ethan. Ethan needs to do is just... Yeah, uh, you just have to unmute yourself, Ethan. Yeah, it's just the little speaker button. That's a good idea. Now can you hear me? <laughs> Yep. Okay. Okay. And it's coming through okay on this? I can hear you. Okay, cool. Well, Alex, thank you for the introduction and Matt for inviting me to do this. And so I'll just riff for a couple of minutes on this and, um, and, uh, and happy to just join the discussion thereafter. So I think, um, you know, the, the I, let me just talk, focus, zoom right in on the issue about people and leaders in the field of illicit drug harm reduction. And, and what the issues are with them vis-a-vis -vis getting more engaged in tobacco harm reduction. I think the first thing to appreciate is that there are a number of people who were sort of key global leaders on illicit drug harm reduction um, who are very committed to this, right? So Pat O'Hare, who founded the International Harm Reduction Association, which renamed as Harm Reduction International, is supportive. Jerry Stimson, obviously, went from a distinguished career of being a drugs and AIDS researcher in the UK 
to becoming the second director of Harm Reduction International, and then obviously deeply involved with his global forum on nicotine. Alex Wodak in Australia is quite passionate about this issue. And in, um, in Vancouver, um, I'm just spacing on his name now. Um, some of you may know, um, uh, Tyndall, Mark Tyndall, um, who's very engaged in the uh, illicit harm reduction and in this issue as well. So there's a number, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting about some others, but there's a number of people who just basically get it and they're drawn to it for the same reasons that I am. One of which is that harm reduction obviously applies not just to illicit drugs, but to a wide range of illicit substances and activities. So it just makes sense. And that secondly, some of the obstacles to tobacco harm reduction very much resemble the obstacles to illicit drug harm reduction in terms of uh, you know, the way in which the whole war on drugs was justified for so long as one great big child protection act. And we see the opposition to tobacco harm reduction oftentimes being justified this way um, in the ways in which you see the scientific evidence and, you know, the obvious, you know, public health and other evidence all pointing in favor of harm reduction, whereas a majority of the public and the politicians and other kind of institutional establishment forces are going the other way. So that's another parallel. And then I think there's a piece of this where I and others you know, have legitimate fears that basically the way things are going, you know, we may be heading in a direction where marijuana is going to be increasingly legal in the U.S. and a growing number of other countries. And at the same time, we're going to be seeing tobacco products increasingly being criminalized. Um, and this, by the way, does get into a related issue. It's a tangent for now. We come back to it, which is that I think Although we're seeing many of the harm reduction products being bought, banned um, in the U.S. and other countries right now, one of my fears is that we're going to see the prohibition more likely, I think, is to see cigarettes themselves being prohibited. Um, and although I hate cigarettes with a passion, um, I think pro prohibition of them would be a disaster and could really result in a if we if we take the global cigarette tobacco prohibition thing too far, we really could land up replicating, if not on a bigger level, all of the harms associated with the, uh, with the war on drugs over the last 30, 40, 50 years. So I haven't made some efforts um, since I stepped down from running Drug Policy Alliance almost five years ago. I had paid attention to this issue for um, quite a while, um, and I'd given it more attention in my last year's running Drug Policy Alliance. Um, but when I stepped down, this issue really engaged me, as Alex said. And so I'll tell you, when I talk, say, with the current head of Harm Reduction International or with folks at Drug Policy Alliance, and I'm not currently in touch with the folks at Harm Reduction Coalition, which is the leading U.S. organization focused on harm reduction, DPA, Drug Policy Alliance is focused more broadly. What I find really is there's a few things going on there. They, they oftentimes get it. There's they get the the, the that the same principles apply that the evidence arguments apply they they more or less get it. I think what what stops them to some extent is first that these are by and large organizations with relatively modest budgets. I mean not as modest as we have in the tobacco harm reduction advocacy area, but still relative to you know social justice organizations, relatively modest. So first, it's hard to prioritize the issue. The second fact is that 
the role of criminalization and the negative consequences of criminalization in terms of people being arrested, incarcerated, all of that, they're just, it's not that substantial as yet. And there's, we can point to bits of evidence here and there, but it's not a huge variable as yet. And thirdly, when it comes to issues around, you know, the negative consequences of black market, so far the black market in tobacco products broadly is, is even when the tobacco control field is seen as an important issue, but not of, of the magnitude that it has been in the drug issue. And then I think the last piece of it here is that the tobacco debate and harm reduction area, there's not a major racial justice, you know, component to it. I mean, you know, the, the issues of drug policy reform and also harm reduction, issues of race and racism are woven deeply into everything about it. From you looking at who's incarcerated, who's disproportionately affected, all these sorts of things. And, and in recent years, because racial justice has been so prominent in American politics and, and culture, it's assumed even a larger role in drug policy reform and illicit drug harm reduction. Um, and also because oftentimes the leadership of these organizations is quite embedded in the kind of, you know, left, sort of the, 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 the more left progressive element of the, of the, of the left wing of, of, and the democratic wing of American politics. And when it comes to this issue, I mean, obviously there's a race issue um, in over menthol. And, but that's one, of course, where the black community is split between a sort of paternalistic black public health establishment that favors the bans and the more social justice, civil rights organizations that oppose the bans by and large. And, you know, see the Eric Garner type situations proliferating dramatically. And then there's another little piece of this thing that involves um, access to public housing and people being pushed out of public housing for smoking and or vaping. But by and large, the racial justice piece is not really substantial. Now, I think among the organizations, Drug Policy Alliance is the one that's most sort of beginning to play a bit of a role. I was pleasantly surprised to see Sheila Vicaria, who's the deputy director of the Office of Academic Engagement at Drug Policy Alliance, I'm speaking at the, one of the recent meetings of the Food, Food and Drug Law Institute and speaking in favor of harm reduction. Uh, they did at their last biennial conference have a panel there where I spoke and some others spoke. Helen Redmond, who some of you know, um, who's played a role in the drug policy reform area, has also been really out there, probably a leader in looking at the intersections between uh, illicit drug stuff and, uh, and tobacco harm reduction. Um, so there are some elements of this emerging. Um, and I'll just finish by saying, you know, one of the things I was pleasantly surprised by a few weeks ago, um, many of you may know I'm now hosting a podcast called Psychoactive, and I went and recorded an episode of it at the first overdose prevention center, or what are sometimes called drug consumption rooms or safe injection rooms. The first one opened in the United States, which opened up in East Harlem in New York a couple months ago. And I walk in the door, and this is a program for people who are illicit drug users, and it's trying to keep them alive and keep them safe. And as I walked in the front door, there was a poster basically saying, if you smoke cigarettes, consider vaping. It's 95% safer. We can help you. And Helen Redmond's name at the bottom of this thing. So it was nice to see that these overlaps are beginning um, to make inroads, um, at least at a few of the harm reduction programs that are operating in communities around the US. So let me stop there and just uh, 
step back a bit for the broader conversation. Yeah, I, I, um, I'll chime in here. Also, I see Helen's in the chat, so if she wanted to speak uh, by chance, uh, feel free to raise your hand, too, and we can make you a speaker. Um, I, I also think there's, there's just some lack of understanding, too, between the two camps um, on both sides. I think uh, a lot of vapors don't understand the, the overarching principles of harm reduction, and we, we saw some of that with, uh, with some of the uh, drama surrounding the crack pipes uh, a week or two ago. And then, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the bigger harm reduction, you know, world groups like DPA and whatnot, um, I think we're kind of like the, the outcast of the harm reduction community, maybe because we're, we're already selling products. There's businesses getting rich on, on, on some of these products and there's the big tobacco element. And I think that that could kind of muddy the waters and, and, uh, turn some of them off as well. I'm not sure. What do you think, Ethan? Oh, I mean, Matt, you're right. I can't, I can't believe I forgot to make that point. But obviously, the issue of big tobacco and, and all the fears about being in bed, you know, them being in bed and all this sort of stuff it is, in fact, a huge issue. I mean, there's something analogous here in terms of what's happened with the pain advocacy groups, you know, where the people advocating on behalf of people of chronic pain and are successfully being treated with opioids you know, one of the things that's happened in the whole opioid epidemic is that the pendulum has swung so far from, you know, on the one end, 10, 15 years ago, over-prescribing opioids for chronic pain in ways that are really not appropriate and created a lot of problems, to now being unwilling to prescribe opioids. And sometimes you have people who have been maintained successfully on opioids to deal with their chronic pain without negative consequences, who are living very successfully as pain patients, taking daily opioids, you know, but still working and leading normal lives and actually having problems, you know, um, uh, you know, accessing their opioid medications. And, and some, many of you may be familiar with now, you know, with the way in which physicians won't even give, you know, a, a small prescription for half a dozen opioids after minor surgery, things like this. And what's happened in that area also is that there's the funding that had come for the, um, pain advocacy groups, oftentimes there was no real serious philanthropic funding there. There was a little bit that used to come from George Soros Open Society Foundation and a few other small foundations. But when the when the, the pharmaceutical companies and others were backing these things, as happened with groups, tobacco harm reduction advocacy groups taking the money from big tobacco or vape companies, you know, there was this tainting. And so you have something, you know, quite similar happening there as well. But I will tell you, I mean, one way I pressed this point with one of the leaders of a harm reduction organization, and, and we were getting to the issue. I mean, obviously, some of the advocates in this area don't take any money from big tobacco or the vaping companies, and some do. But I said to this harm reduction leader in the you know, illicit drug area, I said, let me ask you something. If, if the narcos in Mexico were providing, were offering funding to pay for clean needles and sterile syringes and naloxone um, for harm reduction programs, would you turn it down? Would you tell those programs not to take it? And she said, no, of course not. You know, I mean, you know, ultimately the bottom, uh, bottom line objective here is protecting people's health and well-being, keeping them alive. And so I've made the same point there that, you know, ultimately, yes, there are risks of being corrupted by taking the money from, from big tobacco and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, you know, there's a broader objective here that 
I mean, I was talking about, for example, about the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World and the issues that they've dealt with, and to some extent that Jerry Stimson's dealt with at his organization. Um, you know, that we have to keep our eye on, on the bottom line about this stuff. But I mean, Matt, going back to your original point, yes, it's true that, you know, you know, people in the, in the, in the illicit harm reduction area, they see big tobacco, they have some of the popular reaction to that. And, and, and oftentimes, most of them are sophisticated enough to look beyond that, but it definitely does play a role. You know, one of the things that um, we, we had spoken uh, a while ago, uh, Ethan, and um, I, I think one of the things that you mentioned, and you brought it up again here was, um, you know, we don't have the sort of social justice or racial justice uh, issues so much with tobacco. And unfortunately, we're, we sort of have to wait until it becomes an issue. We have to start seeing you know, state troopers or local sheriffs with card tables and lots of vape gear on top of it posing for the local newspaper. And just within the past, you know, 24 hours, we're seeing a couple of articles where, um, you know, we have kids that went to the hospital because they were likely using uh, adulterated vape pens uh, with, with, you know, THC or whatever in them. Uh, another article was coming out about strip searches in a school in Wisconsin. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious. I mean, uh, is any of that striking a chord with people that, that we are actually starting to see uh, merchandise laid out on, on, on card tables, just like we do in the, in, in the normal drug war? Well, I mean, you remember there was that uh, video that went around a year or two ago about a couple of young black kids who, um, you know, some cop told them to put out their vape and they kind of talked back. And the next thing I think they were being arrested. So that kind of thing made the rounds and it has an impact because it's so similar to what, what was going on with marijuana for so long, where, you know, you had those kind of interactions between cops and young men, mostly young black and brown men. Um, and so that does make an impact. And I remember there was a piece I read a few years ago, uh, a long article about about the number of kids getting expelled from schools. Um uh, 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 you know, in terms because of vape stuff. Um, or then I think there was a tweet today that I can't remember who it was from. I think Greg Conley sent it around about kids supposedly being strip searched in a school for, you know, for vape equipment. So that definitely is a way to sensitize the broader drug policy reform, illicit drug harm reduction reform community. I mean, I, I think we are heading, I mean, it's look, as these bans, I mean, we'll have to see what happens with the whole e-cigarette thing. But, you know, and, and all the politicians, um, you know, are basically saying oh, we're not really going to be busting people for this stuff. But when you start banning things, you know, at some point, the people charged with enforcing these laws, you know, no longer know or remember what the original what the politicians originally said about this stuff. I mean, it's a, part of what happened with the drug war. You know, in the beginning, nobody was thinking about, you know, when we went from many of these drugs that are now illegal being legal. People didn't think it would lead to mass arrests and a million and a half Americans being arrested each year and a half million people behind bars. Um, you know, it's a kind of sneaky and insidious way in which it in which it does come in. So I think definitely the more these kinds of cases of the police getting involved and in enforcing anti-tobacco, you know, or, or vaping possession laws, uh, you know, as, as those happens, it makes a lot of sense to blast those things out as broadly as possible. Um, and to do whatever you can to make sure the folks in the illicit drug world know about this. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think we, we try to do our part and, and a lot of uh, dedicated uh, you know, tweeters in, in the harm reduction area or tobacco harm reduction are, are certainly good about pointing all that stuff out. Um, I, you know, I forgot my question. <laughs> Matt, do you have anything? Well, I, I was just going to point out, we definitely don't have some of the same racial components as illicit drugs do. There, there is some interesting stuff to kind of dive deeper though on like some of the class issues with tobacco uh and and the stigmatization of of smokers and and uh, anybody that uses tobacco products but it's it's you know you you kind of have to explain it a bit more and it's not as glaring as as some of the other stuff we we see in the news all the time yeah you know there was a thing there was a conference on drugs and stigma a couple of years ago and i wrote to some of the uh, tobacco harm reduction academics saying you guys should submit p- papers to become part of this discussion so i think it is important but there's another group uh sort of an online group called changing the narrative which is trying to you know get, create guidelines and encourage journalists to stop using words like addict and start you stop using dumb words to talk about drug stuff that don't help advance the debate or help advance sensible policy. And some of the folks I think in that group are knowledgeable about the uh, tobacco stuff as well. But um, it's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, it's a challenge. Look, as you were also saying, you know, say, saying that on the other hand, uh, uh, other hand, you know, I realize that there are people in the tobacco harm reduction field who are going like, what do we have to do with heroin, cocaine, or methamphetamine? Or even, even some people may think that about marijuana. And I think for folks who are thinking that way, you know, it's really important to understand that, you know, in the same way that vaping uh, nicotine is dramatically safer than than cigarettes. Well, ditto. There's a huge world of difference between taking methadone or taking pharmaceutical heroin and taking heroin that's purchased from the street. You know, there's a huge world of difference, even if you're taking fentanyl, between taking fentanyl where you know exactly the amount in it. And just kind of randomly having a pill or a powder where you have no idea about the potency um, in this thing. Um, you know, there's a big difference between taking a drug in a healthier form and taking a drug in a more dangerous form. Um, so I think all of these principles are, you know, really do apply across the board. And it makes sense to have a, a much greater meeting of the minds and a much greater sense of empathy going both ways in this area. Yeah, it, it's something that was that we kind of ran into the last uh, whenever the, the the news about the uh, safe smoking kits and, and stuff uh, went down. There was a lot of debate within the vape community about that. And, you know, I've, I've suggested to vapors for a long, long time to try to understand the, the harm reduction world and uh, how it applies to, to uh, other uh, drugs and other activities. You know, what, what would you suggest for education for for you know, because a lot of these folks are just, they were smokers and they quit with vaping. And then all of a sudden they start hearing about harm reduction and they know they're reducing harm by vaping, but they, they want to get more active, but they don't really know where to start as far as education goes. Well, I mean, look, a lot of this is just looking on the websites that are available of Drug Policy Alliance, Harm Reduction International, you know, uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, organizations like that, you know, with this whole thing about safer crack pipes or whatever they're calling it now, I got to tell you, I mean, when I was, you know, overseeing the grants programs, even going back to the late 90s, you know, our efforts were not just about syringe exchange and clean needles in order to reduce the spread of AIDS among people rejecting drugs. It was also safe crack pipes because one of the main issues that was arising 
was that people would, you know, smoke crack, you know, which is not a, you know, not, not a good thing you should do, but if you're doing it, you know, people can smoke crack for long periods of time. Not everybody who smokes crack gets addicted to it. I mean, there's a lot of things that are true about crack cocaine that most of America doesn't realize. And it is a problematic and drug, a hard one to control your use of, but not everybody gets addicted. But one of the real problems that was happening was that people were using these metal crack pipes or glass crack pipes that, that w- would get very, very hot, extremely hot, and would land up burning people's lips. And then the burns on people's lips would then become a point of infection or a point of transmission for some communicable disease. And so it just made sense. Like you wanted people not to smoke crack or to smoke things out of these heated pipes. But if they did, you wanted to make sure that they were at least weren't burning their lips and, and, and transmitting communicable diseases. And the same thing, you don't really want people injecting illicit drugs, injecting heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, what have you. But if they are injecting, you don't want them, you know, getting or transmitting HIV or hep C. You don't want them getting abscesses. You don't want them. I mean, all the things that happen when people are sharing syringes or reusing them over and over again. So harm reduction is all about taking it's all about incremental reform. It's about taking one step at a time. You know, just like with smoking, it's about cutting back on the number of cigarettes you smoke. It's about switching from smoking into vaping. If you vape, it might be safer to use or, you know, um, you know, snus or those other tires in or whatever it's called. Right. I mean, it's about those step by step, just trying to do things safe and harm reduction, as we know, you know, also applies to things like, you know, you know, Bicycle helmets, motorcycle helmets are, are harm reduction. Uh, you know, condoms are harm reduction. Uh, designated driving norms are harm reduction. Harm reduction is, is basically a broad approach that says that there are a wide range of substances activities out there that are risky or dangerous or that many people regard as distasteful or immoral. But our obligation as human beings is to try to reduce the harms of otherwise dangerous, risky or immoral activities. I mean, it's just a basic, you know, decent way of looking at how you deal with the realities of life, whether you're talking about kids or adults. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I realize your time is is a bit short tonight, and so I, I did want to get to one thing that hopefully uh, you know we're we're ending things on a positive note, giving people something to do, um, and and really on on my own behalf, this is a question I have, um, which is you know much like you know what Helen had done with with putting the poster up at, at some uh, I assume a New York City harm reduction services. Um, there are other harm reduction services, other harm reduction organizations throughout New York State, and I'm sure everyone else's state. What what do we need to consider in approaching these organizations and suggesting to add tobacco harm reduction to the services that they're uh, offering? I mean, is this do I do I really need a whole lot of credentials and a background in, in social work or health and and all of that? Or or as someone who has experienced the benefits of vaping, do I make a good enough ambassador to approach these folks and say, hey, look, we, we can help here? Well, I mean, I think, Alec, it doesn't hurt to make the effort uh, and whether it's just simply contacting these programs. Um, you know, there's somebody else named Brooke Feldman in Philadelphia who was on a panel with me and Helen at the Drug Policy Alliance thing. But I wonder, Helen, I, I see, I don't know if you're on the speaker status, but maybe you have some good answers to this question as well. Are you there, Helen? Or able to shift on to the um, 
the speaker status. Helen, if uh, if you if you'd like to speak, throw an emoji up, uh, and we'd be really we'd be happy to to give you the the speaker status. Putting people on the spot here on our first our first I'll time. Out. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll stop if I see Helen's thing shift over there. But I mean, Alex, obviously, people within the community are are oftentimes the best people to do it. Um, but there are ways of getting this into the the networks um, uh, because obviously, you know, I think somebody told me um, uh, that Mark Tintel, who was working in the illicit drug harm reduction area, and somebody asked him how did he get involved in tobacco harm reduction. And he said, it hit me that here I'm doing all these efforts to try to, you know, help people who are smoking and injecting illicit drugs to help them lead safer lives, to try to get their lives together, to stay safe. And then it hit me that so ultimately, if we're successful, the majority of them are going to die from smoking related disease because most people who are going to these programs are also consuming cigarettes. And so, you know, it's just it, it just makes all the sense in the world. I mean, there's, you know, there's another interesting issue emerging in this is what role vaping is going to, you know, we already see vaping not just with tobacco, but with cannabis. But there's an interesting question about whether vaping is going to start to play a bigger role with respect to other illicit drugs. And, you know, between injecting something or smoking something or vaping something, you know, it's not great to be doing that with fentanyl or amphetamine or cocaine or whatever. But if you are doing it, you know, for most people, it's going to be less risky oftentimes to be vaping something, um, especially if you have some idea about the uh, potency of the substance you're consuming. I, um, again, to reiterate, Alex, I, I know your, your time is short with us today, Ethan. So thank you for, for joining us. Um, I, have, I had a conversation the other day with Helen about this exact topic, and I'd like to poke your brain about it in regards to... Um, People in the, the drug harm reduction space, um, their concerns with tobacco harm reduction, particularly vaping, being a, a, a profitable business, um, but in the same light being very supportive of safe supply. And my question is, I, I guess in regards to safe supply, someone or, or, or companies, pharmaceutical companies or whoever it may be, are also making a profit there as well, Right. Well, you know, I actually, I mean, safe supply for folks on the on this who don't know, safe supply it refers to the approach coming out of British Columbia, you know, where, you know, where they're now dealing with the situation with fentanyl, where fentanyl is pervasively all around the United States. It's replaced heroin. It's far more potent. There seems to be, given the fact that it's coming in, you know, by people getting over the dark net, the Internet, you know, uh, Mexican stuff coming in. I mean, you name it. Um, you know, they've reached the point where they're saying, look, you know, we don't want people using these drugs. We're offering all sorts of treatment alternatives. Um, if people commit other crimes, we're throwing them in jail. But let's find a way to just make available to illicit drug users the drug they want in a safer form than they're using it on the street. I mean, that's what safe supply is about. How do you make drugs available to illicit drug users in a safer form at little or no cost without making it available to the broader public, right? And there's, you know, this is a real effort now, and it's, it's a serious and innovative policy um, that still needs to be evaluated, but that appears to be producing good results. My sense, Alex, is I don't know that any companies are making a lot of money from this right now. I mean, there might be 
you know, a pharmaceutical company or two that's making a little bit of money. Um, but, you know, what's different from the vaping thing is that, you know, this is being done in a fairly restricted way. Um, if it's either by prescription or in really limited access. And, you know, it goes to that issue, right? Because there are people, you know, um, mostly not in the tobacco harm reduction area, more in the anti-harm reduction tobacco control area, but also people outside who say, why don't you just allow vaping or e-cigarettes by prescription? Or why don't you just allow flavored ones by prescription or something like this? And I think there's a pretty broad consensus in the harm reduction world that, that making e-cigarettes um, or other type things um, uh, available only by prescription is not a good idea because so many people who, you know, want to quit smoking don't want to be medicalized and they don't want to have to go through that whole process because it's going to restrict availability and all that sort of thing. So I think that's why the, the analogy to the safe supply thing kind of is not a powerful one, at least as yet. Yeah, I'd actually I, that, that what you just said kind of reminded me that the, the Truth Initiative had put out a, a statement. We, we did our own podcast on it. It sort of felt like they were sort of trying to school us on what what harm reduction was. And it was this very tightly regulated access. You had to sign a log book to buy a vapor product. Uh, it had to be dispensed in sort of a, an adult only establishment. Uh, meanwhile, you know, cigarettes are, you know, not freely available, but uh, available at, at convenience stores and gas stations all across America. And it, and it to, to me, I, there's coming from the Truth Initiative, it felt like they had sort of weaponized this this viewpoint. Um, I understand completely people wanting to uh, control access and, 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 you know, there's this incremental acceptance of, uh, of substance use. Uh, and certainly being able to provide safer supply. But um, I mean, it, it, it's it, I guess if there is a question here, it is, you know, do you also kind of sense that? I mean, we're in the midst of sort of a propaganda war here. And so pitting this tightly controlled access against what they describe as sort of the Wild West, um, to me, seems really disingenuous and, and overall kind of dilutes the conversation, makes it like we're not having a serious debate about this. Well, you know, there was a period when some of the abstinence-only drug warrior types or the ones who were, you know, not drug warriors, but only supported abstinence-only treatment and stuff like that, um, where they tried to co-opt the phrase harm reduction. And they tried to say that, you know, locking people up was harm reduction. Abstinence-only was harm reduction. I mean, blah, 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 blah. And that ultimately didn't get very far. And I think when I look at what the Truth Initiative put out on this sort of stuff, they see harm reduction as gaining ground. They see that you know, even though the politics are difficult, they see that the FDA is probably moving in the direction of approving, you know, very gradually, all too incrementally, all too gradually, a growing number of harm reduction products. They, you know, the smarter ones know that the science is on our side. And so I think they're putting through, as you pointed out, Alex, a very disingenuous and hyper-controlled version of harm reduction that's really inconsistent with the broader principles about harm reduction, because one of the core principles of harm reduction in the illicit drug area is that it's about the empowerment of individuals. It's about letting individuals take greater control of protecting their own health, right? It's about not being medicalized. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, and so for Truth Initiative, I think they were finding uh, they had their own political need to try to co-opt this in a way. Um, but you can see that, you know, it, it's uh, it is, I think, highly disingenuous on their part. I mean, look, well, we there also, are interesting. 
I was going to let me just say, I mean, there are interesting policy questions, right? Because we know that in trying to deal with the broader politics of how do you restrict access, you know, theoretically to young people while making these readily available to adult smokers so they can quit and then stay quit. You know, there are interesting questions like are there ways to make, you know, the flavored cigarettes, um, you know, uh, easier access to adults? You know, are, can you restrict sales so that we're proof of age? you know, plays a bigger role. Is there an argument, for example, making higher potency, you know, the, what is it, the 0.5 or 50 milligram, whatever, you know, uh, nicotine uh, content uh, e-cigarettes available in a more restricted way than the 0.18 or 0.3, you know, I mean, in the UK, I think, right, there's nothing more than, what is it, 0.3 or something like that. So there are interesting kind of potential compromises um, which involve, you know, might possibly involve, um, you know, some element of, um, you know, of prescription or more restrictions. But I think, you know, essentially, I don't think the truth in this year, I think so long as they feel between the campaign for uh, drug, uh, tobacco-free kids and truth initiative and with all the Bloomberg-funded folks, so long as they feel that they have so such a dominant hand that they don't even need to debate or talk with us or compromise, I don't think they're going to do so. I think it's only as our hand gets stronger um, will that other side be forced to come along to engaging the dialogue on our terms. Well, and to, and to build on that point of, of what Alex was saying, I mean, we also have, it, it doesn't help matters and it muddies the waters more when we see, you know, Bloomberg groups like Vital Strap funding illicit drug harm reduction and then funding vape bans in third world countries and stuff like it's it's 100 percent complete hypocrisy well, and, and it's somewhere you feel like it's like driving kind of a fence between between the two groups and maybe that's you know something that they wanted you know man i mean i have to tell you uh, quite a number of people who um work um, for Bloomberg's vital strategy on the illicit drug harm stuff used to work for me at Drug Policy Alliance. And so there are people working there who, who know exactly how fucked up this is, right? Yeah. But, you know, this is where the directive is coming from the top. You know, it's, it's Bloomberg listening to Matt Meyer and it's Tom Frieden and other key people. And, you know, I, I, I think you know, there's not really an interest in, in having open discussion or debate there. I think some people realize how incongruous the whole thing is to, you know, and, and, you know, Bloomberg, those guys are not exactly cutting edge on illicit drug harm reduction, but they are really, you know, they are committed. And Bloomberg is putting tens of millions of dollars into overdose prevention and some stuff in the needle exchange. Now, they're not bold, you know, uh, not boldly advocating for broader decrim and, and more cutting edge harm reduction of the type we see in Europe and such. Um, but it, it is, it is incongruous in that way. And, you know, I'm trying to do what I can to change that, but it is, it is a challenge. Yeah. I, one, one last note, I know that I think you were, you're about ready to, to step out. Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 this is all so very deeply entrenched in, in humanity and civilization. And I guess maybe just a note that, that was rattling around in my brain was, um, you know, uh, oftentimes, uh, I, I think folks have referred to a counterblast to tobacco it was that King Charles the fourth wrote this in 1604. Um, and we brought this up a lot because people sort of talk about how, you know, this tobacco control is a relatively new thing. But no, this has actually been going on for hundreds of years. And in that 
the, the, in what he wrote, he's actually, I believe, one of the earliest people who it, it's not really code what he wrote, but coming from the king, it carries some weight. He's one of the earliest people who at an administrative level uh, uh, or, or whatever, executive level, invoked racism to discourage people from using tobacco of all things. And so, I, I just, you know, the trope about how drugs turn you into a wild savage and all of that traces back hundreds of years, if not earlier, um, to, you know, how the Western world received tobacco. Um, I, I just always thought that was interesting. And so whenever the, the, uh, the talk about, um, you know, the racism issue with, with the drug war comes up, um, it's it's a lot more deeply embedded than I think even even folks in the drug policy space understand. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, Alex, it even goes back. I mean, you go back four or five hundred years when, you know, the Spanish, uh, you know, were colonizing and, you know, conquering uh, Latin America. And when they would see the uh, indigenous people with this big, big bulge in their cheek, you know, chewing coca, which was part of their indigenous traditions, and in many respects was a relatively healthy thing for them to be doing. I mean, the net, the net, po- the net health impact of chewing coca is by and large a positive health impact, apart from the, the sort of line that's used to remove the, to get the cocaine to come out of it. But I mean, they, it was banned. And so that whole notion of, you know, if you look, um, a lot of it always has this kind of paternalistic and sometimes racist um, element to what's going on here. Now, I do think that the class dimension of this thing, you know, I just um, I remember at one point I was going to make an effort to get, try to get to Bernie Sanders through because uh, I, I had been able to advise him a bit on, on marijuana policy um, about six years ago and and to try to get to him on the vaping issue and to see the potential. But I do think it, you know, one way or another, we have to find some Democratic, you know, champions on this. I mean, there are some Republicans there, but nobody running that hard with it on the vaping issue. I've had a chance to put this issue in the ear of some Democratic politicians that I know from my work on drug policy reform. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, damn, this is a, a really tough effort. And, I, you know, I've been calling them out at times saying, look, you know, here you've been my allies on you know, medical marijuana, marijuana legalization, you know, syringe exchange, overdose prevention, harm reduction, blah, 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 blah. But why are you leading the charge? You know, as a progressive Democrat, why are you leading the charge for banning for banning vaping? And, you know, ultimately, none of them could defend their position. Obviously, they just got caught up in the politics, politics of this thing. And that's the thing that obviously we have to do. What we can to, you know, just by hammering away and hammering away. I mean, quite frankly, I think about what it to get getting involved in the drug policy reform struggle back in the late 1980s at the height of the drug war. I mean, it's kind of the lens in way I look at this fight over tobacco harm reduction, which is it seems overwhelmingly daunting at this time. But the fact of the matter is that when you have the science, when you have the evidence, when you have the issues of empathy and logic on your side, I mean, on one level, you sort of fundamentally know you're ultimately going to prevail. The question is how. To, how do we ultimately uh, expedite, you know, the amount of time that it takes us in order to prevail? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. And I, I know I've, I've keep, kept you a little bit longer than than you had agreed to. So um, we'll, okay. we'll let you get back to your evening. And thank you very much. For well, joining thank us. you, Alec. Thank you, Matt. And it's good yeah, to see so some other names I know in this call. OK, you take care and good luck with everything. Have a good one. Oh, and care. by the way, you all you guys all know about the uh, the burnout workshop that I think uh, Inco is doing uh 
in a couple of weeks. I, I am signed uh, up for it for sure. <laughs> okay. Maybe just make sure that all the CASA folks uh, know about that. And once again, I assume most of you know about my, about my podcast, Psychoactive, where I have had Clyde Bates on and I've had Matt on and I'll be doing this issue in the future. But for people in the vaping issue who want to understand more about about drug policy and illicit harm, drug harm, I strongly encourage you to to you know listen to some of the episodes of Psychoactive. So my own plug, but thanks for inviting me, Matt and Alex, and good luck. Thanks, Ethan. Great. Thanks for okay. joining us. Bye bye. And uh, we can hang out for a few more minutes here uh, because I think there was a question in in the tweet, and also like Ethan was saying, definitely check out his podcast because uh, you you will learn a lot. I've learned quite a bit from it, and uh, some of those episodes were very very interesting. Um, Alex, do you have the question in front of you? I, I don't somebody think I do. Let me look for it here. One tweet shared in this space. That's all I got. This is now that now that Ethan's gone. This is where the the professionalism breaks down. Uh, it looks like the person there was one, and it looks like it got. Uh, I've got it. If uh, you guys want me to read it. Oh yes. Please. Okay, go ahead. Um, so there were two tweets, but he kind of clarified. I'm going to paraphrase, but I think the question is essentially that uh, it seems that most vapors may have a difficult time processing addiction to, you know, quote, hard or illicit drugs being connected to their vaping habits, uh, many of whom are still, you know, in denial that they were addicted to cigarettes. And so he's asking, you know, what our opinion is on that and how we might be able to help bridge that gap and help people who vape see that people who use, you know, drugs or illicit drugs are sort of in the same, in the same space. Well, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll speak from my, my personal experience having been through substance use treatment um, or substance use recovery. I, I am a person, I am a person in long-term recovery, long-term substance use recovery. I, I forget how I'm supposed to say it now. Um, but, you know, when I, Went, I went through it was a four months of inpatient rehab. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, um, you know, the importance of, of, of how, you know, everybody in, in those, those rooms has the shared experience of, of, of struggling with substance use uh, and, and, and working for recovery. And the most important thing to me was, just having that connection and, and feeling that, that I, I wasn't alone. And when I got into vaping, when I switched to vaping, I saw the same thing happening in vape shops that, you know, and I've, I've said this all the time. And, and I think this is, if, if, if this goes any, any distance toward helping people understand that this is all really kind of the same thing. Um, you know, when someone comes into a vape shop and they're trying to quit smoking and, and the person behind the counter is nice and helpful and encouraging and someone else gets up and says, hey, I quit smoking by switching to these things. In that moment, all three of those people are connected and supporting one another. And it's 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 very much the same thing. I, I, I think, you know, the, the the big hurdle I think a lot of people have is that you know, you don't smoke a pack of cigarettes and then have a, a horrible car accident or, you know, you're not going to lose your house trying to. Well, hopefully you're, nowadays it's possible, but, you know, you're not going to you're not going to spend a mortgage payment on trying to buy cigarettes or, or something like that. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's this trope, I think, in the recovery world of like you have to hit rock bottom until you can get better. It's, it's, it's never it's never too late to try to, you know, get well um, and. And, and it, it, we don't have to experience these horrible disasters in order to 
accept the fact that, that we have a problem with a particular drug, that it's starting to rule our lives, that our lives are becoming unmanageable um, and, and that we need help. Um, and, and it, you know, I guess that's probably one of the more I, I don't want to use. I don't think it's nefarious or, or it, it, it's just, it, it, you know, smoking is, is sort of one of those subtle um, uh, uh, well, it's not so much subtle. I, I'm using all the wrong words here, but I mean, you know, the point is that it, it doesn't impair your ability to function uh, like other drugs might might do. I mean, depending on the drug uh, and depending on who you are. Um, so I, I think it, it's just, you know, it's that because nicotine is such a mild stimulant and it doesn't uh, it doesn't lead to things like being inebriated to the point of losing control. Uh, that, that people seem to think that, that, that it's just not the same as, you know, someone doing cocaine or, or heroin or something like that. But when we talk about recovery and, and getting better, it's all very much the same. Yeah. And to, uh, to kind of echo off of, um, you know, Ethan's point earlier, just talking about Mark Tyndall uh, up in Canada uh, and, and my own personal experience with, with smoking and drugs, um, they all too often went hand in hand. Uh, and, and thankfully, you know, in Philadelphia, they've kind of done an about face on, you know, their, their smoking prohibition and, and treatment centers and things like that. Um, and Brooke Feldman, uh, an individual that had a, a lot to do with changing that. But, you know, smoking and drug use for me and, and everyone that I knew in, in my, my circle of of all of us who did drugs together, um, we all smoked. Uh, and, and he makes a really good point that all of these efforts were, were being put into, you know, people um, gaining access to clean syringes, clean gear. Uh, and not only that, when they're, when they're at these places, they're also being, um, you know, given access to or introduced to other services uh, like treatment, rehabilitation, things like that. Um, but then, you know, they're, they're, they're still going to die from smoking. And I, I think this is a, a really great point for us to make in regards to including tobacco harm reduction into these, uh, into this space, because all this effort, again, being applied to keeping people alive now who, who may lose their life, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road to, to smoking. I think it's also important. And then part of what that guy's question was, I think was like, how do you bridge the gap between vapors and the and uh, the illicit uh, drug harm reduction world? When a lot of vapors, you know, don't think that they're addicted, they have a dependence, which you know is because you know we don't need to go into the whole addiction equals dependence plus harm thing right now. But anyway, they have a hard time understanding the the addiction world, I guess. And and what I would suggest to those vapors that that because I saw a lot of them at when the crack pipe news happened, putting this that whole thing down and and uh, putting down uh, uh, people that that had uh, uh, that were using crack. Um, what I would suggest to them is, is they need to realize how stigmatized they are too. So what they're doing and projecting onto these other users, you know, they they own some of that as well. And that's how you can connect the two groups possibly is by pointing out the stigmatization. Um, yeah, obviously it might be a little bit different. I'm not saying that that's, you know, smoking's on the same level as, as crack, but you know, both groups are looked down upon. And so, uh, you, you definitely should try to understand each other and uh, try to help each other out. I did. It just kind of reminded me of something that, that, 
Um, you know, a lot of what Kasa has been doing, I think, sort of subtly um, over the past 10 years or so, uh, has been educating uh, our membership and, and anyone curious about, you know, our mission uh, about the, 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 the broader tobacco harm reduction uh, uh, field and uh, that it, it's not just vaping. And, and, and we've had to, to push back on a lot of misinformation about smokeless tobacco. Um, and, and I'll, you know, for, for my own part, and I think, you know, speaking, speaking for some of our board members, when we got involved with this, uh, a lot of us came to it with this misconception that switching from smoking to smokeless tobacco was just trading lung cancer for oral cancer. And so I, I think it's important that even within the, the category of tobacco products, we have to acknowledge that we've been conditioned to believe things that are just not true. And so it, it, I, I think, you know, if, if it takes just acknowledging that within the tobacco product space to sort of, you know, just extend that out to what we think we know about other substance use uh, and, and, and really question, I think, a, a lot of the messages that we've been receiving, you know, throughout our lives. Yeah. And that, that continuum of risk um, not only applies to tobacco, but it applies to just about every other substance that you can imagine um, in regards to moving from, um, you know, the illicit drug supply and using in uh, a more dangerous way, uh, injecting with uh, the same needle multiple times to moving towards um, clean gear and a safe, you know, safe controlled supply. There's a continuum of risk there um, as well as, you know, going from, you know, uh, snooze to cigarettes or, or patches to cigarettes or something like that. There's, there's a continuum of risk with all of these substances. And I think that's, that's, uh, you know, worth acknowledging for everyone. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, did, do we have any more questions or comments out there? I don't think so. Uh, definitely uh, worth checking out the Casa.org website if you haven't recently. Um, we revamped it uh, about a year ago or so, and uh, it's pretty awesome. So check it out. Um, and we are going to try to do these once. What did we decide, Alex? Once every two weeks? Yeah, I think once every two weeks. And we'll have, uh, you know, different topics at each time. So I don't That's all. I think we covered a lot. I think it was okay for our first one. Yeah. You know, we only had one F bomb and it was from the special guest. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we were able to keep this casual and and somewhat informal. Um, I just didn't want Julie to yell at me, to be honest. That's, that's the only reason. I don't even, (laughs) Julie's not even listening. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Well, um, unless we have any other questions or comments or points uh, board members would love to make uh, Jim, I know you're here unless you, if you've got something uh, to say, speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, we will wrap this up uh, as our first and successful uh, Twitter spaces. Thank you everyone for joining us. I know we saw some unfamiliar faces, uh, special thank you for all this, the familiar faces uh, thank you for all the folks who are curious and stopping by. Special thank you to Ethan Nadelman for joining us and making this 
um, a, a good conversation, hopefully a very informative conversation for those who might be new to this stuff. Um, and uh, if you want to listen to this later, we will have this, we should have this, a recording of this posted on our website. Um, I assume under something with the heading of media and podcasts and so on. Um, and that's that. Uh, for those who can't get enough of, of myself, Logan and Kristen and whoever we are able to get on as a special guest, we will be having our CASA podcast on Saturday, 4.30 Eastern. Uh, you can catch us on the Facebooks, the YouTube and Twitter, uh, and you can catch the replay on all the places where you get your podcasts. Um, Logan does a much better job of that outro, but I figured I'd give it a shot. Anything else, guys? You, you did a great deep, job. <laughs> you did a great voice. job. <laughs> you did a great job, Alex. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good job, Alex. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, then. Well, uh, everybody, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Be excellent to each other. Bye-bye.